This is a CBC podcast. Hi there, I'm David Cochran, and this is the Power and Politics podcast for Friday, November 24th. On the pod today, a rare and potentially pivotal moment of relief in the Israel Hamas war. The first group of hostages has been released in a four day truce that appears to be holding. Coming up, everything we know about those released. And here at home, the finance minister has been out this week promoting measures in the government's fall economic update. The power panel weighs in on that. Meanwhile, conservative leader Pierre Polyev is on the defensive this week after voting against a trade deal with Ukraine and for his comments about a crash at the U.S. border. The political pulse panel is ahead on the week that was. 24 hostages, including 13 Israeli women and children, are now safely back in Israel on day one of a temporary ceasefire between Israel and Hamas. Some dramatic new images released by Hamas. They show its fighters with with their faces covered, delivering Israeli hostages to the Red Cross. Most of the captives appear to be able to walk on their own, but at least one elderly woman was carried to a Red Cross vehicle. In exchange, 39 Palestinians held in Israeli jails have been freed. That includes 24 women and 15 teenagers. Some were convicted by Israel of attempted murder for attacks on Israeli forces. Some were jailed for offenses such as throwing stones. The CBC's Briar Stewart joins us now from southern Israel. So, Briar, obviously a significant development today. Tell us about some of these hostages now reunited with their families. That's right. And when it comes to the hostages, I mean, there were two sets. There were the 13 that were released under the deal between Israel and Hamas. And then there were the additional 11, uh, 10 Thai nationals, one person from the from the Philippines. And they were released too. They've all been taken to the hospital uh, where they're being reunited with family. And in terms of the Israeli hostages, uh, the government has put out a list releasing their names. And we know that most of them were from near Oz. That's a kibbutz that was uh, one of the worst hit during the brutal attack on October 7th. More than 100 people were either killed or abducted. And in terms of just some of the the stories uh, and the people, uh, one of them, 85-year-old Yaffa Adar, and in fact she was um, one of the first people that they knew had been taken hostage by Hamas because there was a video of her in the back of a golf cart. And then also, uh, there was four children that were released uh, as part of this hostage deal, including nine-year-old Ahud Munder. And he was released with his mother and his grandmother. But his grandfather was also taken hostage as well. He was not released because, of course, this, this deal focused on the women and children. Um, the 13 Israeli hostages after they came out, uh, then that's when we saw the 39 Palestinians who've been imprisoned in Israel released into the West Bank and in East, into East Jerusalem. Okay, so while that is happening, uh, this is the first time in a long time there's been no military activity in Gaza. What do we know about the situation in Gaza at this point? Well, that's right. And the ceasefire this morning, and I guess I shouldn't use that word because what they're calling it is a humanitarian pause or an operational pause. It did get off to a bit of a shaky start because there was uh, reports of, of some shooting afterwards and there was some smoke wafting over the Gaza skyline for a bit. I connected with a young journalist in Gaza who said that uh, mid-morning uh, several shots were fired and she actually saw people come into the hospital with leg injuries, Associated Press is reporting that two Palestinians were killed as a group of people tried to move into northern Gaza. Now, 
Of course, in recent weeks, hundreds of thousands of people have been displaced from the north to the south, and I think people were hoping that this break would give them the chance to go back to the north to, to check on their home, perhaps pick up things, check on family members, and in, in some cases, retrieve the dead. I mean, we know that more than 14,000 people have been killed in this war, and, and aid agencies and, and civilians talk about how many people are probably still buried under the rubble. Uh, and so what this journalist told me is that people were very disappointed not to be able to go back up north and, and instead are, are staying in the south. I did manage to connect with another person later in the day and he said just being able to walk out on the street, go to the market, try to find some food, uh, go with your can of uh, your plastic can to try to pick up some water, doing it knowing that there was not going to be uh, an airstrike or some kind of bombardment really did feel uh, like a relief. And of course we know that aid trucks, desperately needed aid, has been able to come in. The UN says 137 trucks were offloaded in Gaza today, which is a record uh, ever since this, this conflict began on October 7th. But I think the question is, is just how um, easily will the aid be distributed? Because the UN will have access to, to I understand, to, to most of Gaza to be able to drop off aid and help with some of the evacuations from the north. But other aid groups that I've been speaking with say their mobility is quite restricted. And I know that they were hoping to be able to access some of these areas and the tens of thousands of people who haven't evacuated from the north yet. But it's, it's not clear how easy that's going to be. And of course, we have to mention this is just day one. Day one of a very uh, fragile agreement. And both Hamas and Israel have said that they're very committed to this deal. But, you know, there, there's lots of unknowns here. And, and uh, Hamas is not the only uh, militant group in Gaza. It's the dominant one. It, it controls the area, but there are other different militant groups, other factions. And you do really wonder how some of um, just the dynamics there could, could affect the situation on the ground. I mean, we heard reports of shooting today. And again, this is just day one. We'll have to see what happens in the days ahead. Okay, Briar, thank you so much as always. That's the CBC's Briar Stewart in southern Israel. The International Committee of the Red Cross is playing a vital role in the release and transfer of the hostages and prisoners today. They're a neutral intermediary, not been involved in the negotiations themselves, but they help with the exchanges. And we've reached the head of the ICRC delegation in New York, Letitia Courtois. She's also the ICRC's permanent observer to the United Nations. Letitia, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. You've helped with this important uh, release of hostages and Palestinians who were in Israeli custody. What are you hearing from your ICRC colleagues about the conditions of the hostages released today? How are they? Well, first, let me start by saying how relieved we are that the, this operation, which was very complicated and, and complex on, on happening on multi fronts happen uh, smoothly. It really is a good first signal uh, to moving uh, forward in the coming days. Um, now we can imagine the conditions of the hostages. Um, there were kids, uh, uh, grandparents, uh, elderly, uh, detained for a few weeks uh, in condition probably very, very basic in the middle of a war zone uh, without contact with their families and without or with limited access to medical care. So I think it's important to, uh, to give them a time to, to reconnect, um, to be uh, properly checked as well, and above all, to be reunited with their loved ones. 
How worried are you that this may not hold? I mean, it's taken a, a, a lot of work to get to this point. Um, there's not a lot of trust, obviously, between the parties, and, and it's a fragile agreement, I, I think it's safe to say. Uh, what, what's your level of anxiety about the ability of this to, to be seen through to its conclusion? Uh, we obviously are anxious. Um, it is obviously holding to, to a thread, but we need to make this thread stronger and stronger. Uh, this operation is, is actually contributing to the trust building that, that needs to happen to move forward in, in these that are more complex, more complicated. That will include as well more uh, compromises, and those are more urgent than ever. You, we, we hear uh, about the disastrous situation in Gaza, uh, the immense needs of the population that is confronted with, with massive needs, continued hostilities and, and very, very little safety to be able to, to even go out in the market, find water, food for their beloved ones, and not, not even uh, mentioning the, the lack of medical access for increasingly number of people injured that really require attentive and, and really important medical support to take care of their injuries, which are very complex to address. So we really need everyone to play its part to make this um, uh, agreement continue and extend uh, to the necessary possible. It, it had been reported uh, that as part of this agreement, the uh, International Committee of the Red Cross would be given access to the hostages who were not included in this swap arrangement that you might get to see and check on the condition of some of the people that are being held by the various groups inside Gaza. Is that still going to happen? Can you give us a sense of when that might happen if it is still on the agenda? Well, as, as we mentioned, that this is a step-by-step -step, uh, agreement. Uh, this first day was critical. It was, it was really important that it, ha it happens uh, in the smoothest way. Uh, the ICRC has been calling from the onset to have access to uh, those uh, held hostages, and we will continue to call for that access, to call as well for the families to have proof of lives of their loved ones and to be able to, to communicate with them. So we'll continue to uh, push uh, and, and make this uh, happen. At least this is our intention. Okay, but there is no formal agreement at this point with a timeline uh, to allow for that to happen. Am I correct in understanding that, Leticia? I don't have the details on, on that particular element, but you can be sure that this is something we will push one way or another. No, understandably so. I, I wonder, I, I don't like reducing human beings to, to ratios, you know, and, and doing math with them, but we were told this would be 50 hostages for 150 uh, Palestinians. And today we saw uh, 24 uh, uh, hostages released, uh, 13 Israeli, 11 other nationals, and, and 39 Palestinians. Uh, can you shed any uh, light on why those numbers in, in those proportions uh, were released today and how this might play out over the coming days? I mean, the, the agreement that the parties um, have reached, as you mentioned, uh, is not something that the RCRC has been negotiating. So it, it is really up to the, to the wearing parties to, to put those numbers and agree on those numbers uh, that are on the table. Um, on the one hand, we have 239 people that need uh, to get uh, released immediately and unconditionally. And on the other side, you have a number of people being detained, uh, that we uh, want to continue visiting as well, uh, as long as necessary to ensure as well that uh, we are there for them in those uh, moments and they can also be reunited with their family when the time comes. So we really hope that whatever deal the, the warring parties are uh, agreeing to, it, it includes the largest number of people.
You, you talked about the humanitarian needs inside Gaza. Obviously, this, this uh, uh, temporary pause, if should it hold, is an opportunity for aid groups to get inside to, to help alleviate some of the difficulties in there. But um, Israel's defense minister has vowed that when these four days are up, they're going to continue the fight forcefully and expect at least two more months of battle. What's your response to that? Can the people of Gaza, the civilian population of Gaza, endure two more months of this? It is very difficult to uh, to imagine those two months ahead. But I think what is important is that this is not just an opportunity. This is a necessity to have humanitarian uh, assistance scaling up. Uh, the needs are so huge. Uh, we're heading to winter. The weather is changing. The needs are increasing uh, for those that are surviving, really surviving in the Gaza Strip right now. And this humanitarian assistance needs to continue entering to the right scale and scope, regardless of the hostilities continuing. This is an obligation under international humanitarian law. It needs to happen. So we really are hopeful that today's um, initiation of, of a larger uh, humanitarian pipeline continues uh, and increasing by the day. We are seeing reports that uh, more than 100 trucks have gotten in today and aid is starting to flow. What are you hearing in terms of what aid workers who are able to get in after struggling to get in are, are reporting in terms of what they're seeing from inside Gaza on the first day of this, um, of this pause? Well, we have had uh, colleagues entering into Gaza. Uh, unfortunately, they're also joining colleagues that are exhausted. Mm. Uh, they also have been victims of the overall uh, war. I mean, we, we lost a colleague a few days ago uh, with who, who died with his own family as well. So this is this is a tragic situation where our colleagues are, um, are faced with, and and we really need to to scale up uh, the the uh, pipelines, but also the human capacity to to distribute this assistance to be where we need to be in all places where the civilians are uh, direly uh, needing humanitarian assistance, and for that we need also to have the capacity to scale up uh, on that file. So really, I, I hope we we manage to um, to engage with a sufficient number of staff. Uh, in uh, safe conditions, obviously, uh, to make sure they can provide the support that the Gazans need directly. Letitia Courtois, head of the New York delegation uh, of the International Committee of the Red Cross, thank you so much for your time today. Mm -hmm. Well, two of the released hostages are Danielle Aloni and her five-year-old daughter, Amelia. We spoke to Danielle's brother, Moran, last month after he received a message from the Israeli government confirming they had been taken hostage by Hamas. We don't know what message we're going to get next. Um, we're trying to hold uh, each other. We have many friends and, 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 and a big family that's, that, uh, that supports us during this Um you know, on 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 Friday when they came and said that they kidnapped, I was thinking a couple of days later on the surreal situation where someone comes to your house and say that six members of your family are known as kidnapped, and you feel relief. Yeah, yeah. that's that's where we are now. So those two were taken alongside his other sister, Sharon, her husband David, and their twin three-year-old daughters, Emma and Yuli. Sharon and her family were not named as part of the 13 Israeli hostages released today. 
We also have some good news on the family of Marav Raviv, and we spoke to her last month. Her uncle, aunt, and cousin Kieran were kidnapped along with Kieran's son, Ohad. Ohad just turned nine last Monday, and they just came from another, uh, another city in, uh, in Israel to visit grandma and grandpa. It was the, uh, uh, the end of vacation, a Jewish uh, holiday, and a weekend, and they came to visit. And they, they suddenly they found themselves in that horrible thing. And Karen, uh, the, her last uh, text was, we, are not, we, are, we have to be in silent. We are not watching the television since I don't want Ohad to be scared and watch the, move, the, the news. So we are putting him uh, cartoons on, uh, on the television. So among the hostages released today, Marav's aunt Root, Karen, and Ohad. In this video posted by Hamas, this appears to be video of the three of them being released. There is no word, however, on Marav's uncle, Avraham. The finance minister has been out this week promoting measures in the government's fall economic update. On Tuesday, I tabled the fall economic statement for 2023. This was the newest phase in our government's economic plan, a plan which is focused on continuing to support the Canadian middle class and on building more homes faster. But that plan also projects slowing growth and steep debt carrying costs in the coming years. So will the Liberals, can the Liberals, get a political bump from this week's economic statement? It's time to bring in the Friday Power Panel. The CBC's Jason Markasoff is in Calgary, and here with me in the studio, Marie Vastel is an editorial writer for Le Devoir, and I'm also joined by journalist and author Paul Wells. We're hoping to connect with Nigan Sinclair at some point during the segment, but let's start here in Ottawa. Paul, uh, let's start with what we heard today from the government, a much slimmer fall economic statement than we've certainly seen during the COVID years, and one that the governor of the Bank of Canada described as helpful in terms of maybe getting monetary policy back in a, in a positive direction. What do you make of the week? Uh, I already uh, have forgotten everything about the fall update. Um, <laughs> there you go. That's probably, it's probably a good thing, uh, not only because it limits my ability to be snarky, but also because um, it... it it shows at least this kind of restraint. Fall updates used to be an update on the economy. It used to be telling us how the economy was going and to begin to lay the narrative for budgetary measures in the following spring. And um, I, I think it's healthy for this government to be minimalist sometimes rather than maximalist. The all-singing, all-dancing government is shtick that a lot of Canadians are getting real tired of. And uh, when you, there's there's a few props involved when the finance minister shows up with a hard hat and a vest, but um, when she limits herself to, uh, you know, some modest spending uh, measures, uh, a sort of refinement on the green transition measures that very few of us are following, and leaves it at that, it's probably a good day at the office. Yeah, I think, Marie, they're kind of telling us we have to do something on housing no matter what. Mm-hmm. We have to get the green transition right no matter what. And other than that, things kind of have to wait. That seemed to be the And even that kind of has to wait, there. right? Because the new money given in loans for, for new housing is starting in 2025, 2026. Right. So well, it refills a program that will deplete yes. by then, right? Yes, yeah. yes. But, I mean, even that is, is at a later date. Yes. Um, we didn't talk about the fiscal update much except on Tuesday. And even on Tuesday, on some shows, uh, like I was watching RDI, your French network, it wasn't very predominantly um, 
covered, perhaps because it was a smaller fiscal update, like Paul said, um, or because s the limited investments are later on. And the news is kind of bleak, which is um, probably a good thing for the government that it w wasn't covered yeah. that much this week, yeah. uh, given, you know, the deficits are going up, the debt charge is going up to a point where it'll be equivalent to our health transfers. Presumably, those are billions of dollars you could do something else with if you if you didn't have to put them uh, on the debt. And so I think the government's probably not too, too, too upset that we're not talking about it, um, because not that nothing in the fiscal update is helpful. It's just that I think the measure of success in, in people's minds will be when they actually see interest rates go down, when they actually see rental or um, housing purchase, for lack of a better word, uh, prices go down. Right. I, I, I think up until then, it's a lot of numbers and not very concrete in people's minds. Well, well Jason, I wonder if that was the positive part from the uh, from the fall economic statement that it was not seen to have done anything to make Tiff Macklem's job more difficult and, and if anything was seen as being potentially helpful in terms of making the next uh, decision on an interest rate change to be one that makes it easier for people. It seems like I described it as like a Hippocratic oath fez and that do no harm is what Christian Friedman was seeking out to do. If Perhaps if there was a room that the Liberals were trying to read, it was the Bank of Canada boardroom um, <laughs> on that because of the of uh, how much uh, they sense is built into the idea that if, if interest rates rise again, um, and if anybody can seem to blame us, um, the Liberals, for it, um, then that's a big problem. If, uh, if they drop in the new year, that will certainly help uh, the Liberals will go the thinking. Um, you know, let, and let, let's think about these, the Big Bang housing promises, the promises they've been making for several months since August. Well, that was when um, their polls started dropping. So there seems to be this disconnect between Big Bang promises and liberals rushing in to help and um, them gaining support. In fact, the opposites happened. Certainly there's no correlation causation mm -hmm. there. I mean, you'd, you'd, you'd imagine not. Um, but the other thing that we learned uh, through, you know, more clearly through these uh, this fiscal update is the limited room they have uh, if they want to keep um, this fiscal new fiscal anchor of one percent of GDP uh, for deficits. Um, this is still government that has a lot to do and a lot, lot of lot of promises to fulfill. They have to figure out something right. on pharmacare with uh, with the NDP. They have. Uh, they have the environmental commitments. Uh, they have ten dollars childcare. Let me tell you, as a father with a kid in childcare, it is not ten dollars yet, and that deadline is coming up soon. So they have limited room to do more things, um, and they may have also learned that doing more things hasn't helped them uh, politically just yet. Right, and ladies and gentlemen, we are joined now by Nigan Sinclair, a columnist for the Winnipeg Free Press and professor. Nigan, this is like in an 80s sitcom when the, the walk-on guest comes in and they get the big round of applause partway through the episode. Norm! <laughs> <laughs> uh, what, what, take us outside the Ottawa bubble on the Fez. So Jason, just uh, to give us a view uh, from Calgary, the Fez, of course, being the fall economic statement. What's your sense on, on what we saw and heard from the Deputy Prime Minister and the government this week? Well, I mean, the fact is that the Fez, uh, you know, there are still lots of really important things in there. I mean, uh, there's uh, around predatory pricing and there's some really important stuff in terms of, you know, like there's some ticket items that I think Canadians may not see uh, as highly 
something that's really effective in the long term, like the the issue around uh, supporting people who to bring their children on flights or the uh, predatory pricing in terms of bank costs or uh, talking about regulations for banks to support people with mortgages for the regulatory uh, charter. I mean, those things are things that are important, but the problem is, is they aren't a big ticket item that the federal government really needs to be able to change the momentum. Uh, and so as a result, what you're left with is it being very quickly pushed off the news cycle for an issue like uh, the terrible tragedy that happened at the border uh, just down the road from where I am in uh, in Niagara at the moment. So, I mean, the real reality is is that the, the government needs a big ticket item to be able to change this momentum. Uh, and these small things, while very important, really don't uh, sort of grip the interest of the middle class. Uh, although, as mentioned before, I think there are some really good things within this fall economic statement. Yeah, we're going to talk about some of the other issues that sort of derailed the conversation uh, this week. <laughs> in our next segment. I'm going to go a little bit more in depth there. But, but Paul, just uh, on uh, the Fed, just a little bit more. Like, we saw the, the debt servicing numbers, and they're going to go up to about $60 billion by the end of this fiscal track. That's enough to pay for the Canadian Armed Forces twice. So that's a big dollar amount. Now, some of that debt, they had no choice. Pandemic did that. Some of it is just Justin Trudeau spending with Stephen Harper taxes, right? It just it leads to uh, big deficits over time. But the outlook, in a lot of ways, was more the story, I thought, in that the political runway the Liberals have available to them between now and the next election is one of high unemployment and low growth. And that is a big challenge for a government in the situation they're in. Yeah, and it's making trouble for governments around the world. Right. Uh, it's, a hard, it's a hard environment for incumbents in general. Um, that those debt charges, uh, one of my old editors used to say, a billion here and a billion there, pretty soon you're talking real money. Um, uh, uh, liberals and their supporters will quickly remind us that that's a smaller, much smaller share of the GDP than yep. the 90s uh, debt, but it does preclude other spending that I'm sure Christopher Freeland would sure like to make if she, if she was able. Um, I never get over the irony of how she replaced a finance minister who had the temerity in 2020 to suggest that not all spending was good spending, and now she sounds an awful lot like Bill Morneau. Yeah, Marie, it's, it's interesting how, um, you know, higher interest rates, this is not the 80s, but it is higher than certainly governments of the past a few election cycles are used to, how it changes the circumstances mm -hmm. and focuses the mind when it looks like growth is not going to be able to carry you through it. It's also that I'm, a lot of this was not predictable. COVID was not predictable. No, of course not. Um, but I, I remember even at the beginning of COVID, there were questions asked about how much should we spend? Is there a risk of inflation? Is there a risk of interest rates going up and, and things getting out of control? I don't want to say that the government could have avoided all of it, but from the get-go, you could sort of see the risk. Uh, and to Paul's point, Christian Freeland, um, not just her and cabinet, um, decided to spend more. And so it's interesting today that they're in the situation they're in. And as you say, they're kind of stuck because they do still have big ticket items that they've promised the NDP. This pharmacare thing is going to cost a lot, even if it is a uh, hybrid model that we sort of try to... Um, align with provincial models, and that's not even what the NDP wants. Let a, what happens if the government, I don't think they will, decides to give the NDP what they want. Which well, you is lose your AAA like, credit rating and a whole bunch of other problems come so out. I, Seems to be the message of what we're getting this I think they already didn't want way. to do yeah. it, um, and now they really don't want to do it. But even if it is a smaller model of pharma care, it'll cost money. We still have to expand dental care, which is what the government promised. That'll cost money. There are still a lot of things that were promised that need to happen that seem 
harder and harder given the wiggle room that Christian Freeland outlined in the Fez. All right, gang, thanks so much. Thanks to the Power Panel, Marie Vestel, Paul Wells, Negan Sinclair, and Jason Markasoff. The foundation of our fall economic statement is our responsible fiscal plan. Well, this was supposed to be a week about the government's fall economic statement, but then a terrorist attack that turned out to be a traffic accident and a vote against an updated free trade deal with Ukraine turned the spotlight on Conservative leader Pierre Polyev. Where you are wrong is that CTV reported that the government of Canada was presuming that the incident was terrorist. So, yeah, that was, and that's what I said in my remarks. You're right. It was a media report. But it's citing media reports and not... Which is what I said in the House. I said there are media reports. All right, we're going to check the pulse of federal politics for the panel of party insiders. In studio with me, Greg McEachern, former Liberal staffer and now at Can Strategies. Melanie Richet, former Director of Communications for the NDP and now a senior consultant with Earnscliffe Strategies. And Fred Delory, former Conservative campaign manager and a partner at North Star Public Affairs. All right, gang, uh, Fred predicted last week we wouldn't be talking about the Fez. We will talk about the Fez, uh, but I do want to start, uh, Greg, with, with the PR Polyev moments of the last couple of days because you see this as like your misplay of the week the voting against ukraine on a false claim that there was imposing a carbon tax to ukraine uh, trade agreement and then the issue that we played there blaming ctv for what he said in in parliament what's your sense of where it went this week if you had asked me which uh political leader would be saying the media made me do it I would not have picked the leader of the Conservatives, who, you know, I, I, I've heard some strong language um, on political shows the last couple of days. And, uh, um, you know, he certainly doesn't seem to love the media. Hate is a strong word. I think disdain them. Uh, you spoke uh, earlier about how you don't see a lot of Conservative MPs on this show. Um, you know, if I was working for one of the other parties, I'd say, great, more, more time for us. But this is... Um, the phrase that, that I'm kind of stuck on is Chantal Bear last night on the Ad Issue panel said the word lie. I um, was talking about a panel that she was at and it was being used. Yep. Um, if you're going to lie about the little stuff, what are you going to do about the big stuff? And this could have been so easily handled. When big news happens, um, something kind of nice once in a while happens in the House of Commons where the leader of the opposition will stand up and ask the Prime Minister of the day, can you update the House? Easy peasy, you know, um, it's, it's done. He threw in the words uh, around terrorism, and then, which, you know, were being published, but the next day he lied about it and blamed CTV. And I was sitting in my car in a parking garage thinking, I watched this yesterday in real time. I don't remember it happening that way. And I think I and a lot of other people started looking into that. And it was pretty easy to yeah. find out, you know, places like True North, very right wing uh, platforms here in Canada or Fox News around 153 had said it. It would have been so easy for him to say, you know what, got out over my skis. It's important to be thoughtful at these times, and uh, I got it wrong. But instead, he doubled down and started picking a fight with a young female reporter, which is what we've seen before. Yeah. And it's also supposed to be the opposite of the ads that they've run on them. Well, look, there were media reports, and it's fine to ask if it was terrorism or not. We were all asking, I was asking people that. And Melanie, it's not asking if it's terrorism. It's the next day creating a, a narrative as to why you did it, which is not supported by the actual facts. Yeah, and, and you know, uh, I don't have any kids, but I know we tell kids, you know, when you make a mistake, own up to it. Um, and we especially, I think, expect our elected officials um, certainly the person who wants to be prime minister to do the same. Um, 
I maybe had a little bit of a different view watching that clip. Pierre Poliev, we know that he's going to have a hard time talking to women in the next election. And seeing that clip literally makes me, like, my skin crawl a little bit, right? It's the, the disdain to the person, the... Um, how dare you say that I could be wrong on something? Um, that is what needs to change in the, in the lead up to the next election for, for Pierre Poliev to convince women voters to vote for him. Um, and what we've heard for a while is sometimes he just can't help himself. I mm. think we saw that. And um, it would be wise for the Conservatives to work on that so that we don't just see more of it leading into the next election. Fred, the Conservatives certainly on social media are viewing it very differently, right? They see this as Pierre Poliev schooling a biased journalist. Mm who asked a fairly innocuous question, I thought a pretty, should have expected it was coming uh, today. Uh, how do you think it's playing in their circles? What do you think the broader implications of it all are? It's funny, as a conservative, uh, we have a, t a feeling generally that the media is against us, and, and in many ways we, we can all point to examples where we see that. Uh, but there are times when maybe the tone is a little bit too aggressive, and I think that was the case uh, this week. Um, there's no question, though, that people do relish it within the conservative movement, going pushing back against media uh, and doing so, and it does play. The biggest, and again, I've said this for a while now, the biggest news outlet in the country is Pierre Polyev. He gets his message out directly yep. more than any other outlet reaches viewers in, in, in big numbers. Uh, so he's, he is playing to his people, uh, to the supporters of the party, and they're, they're seeing this, and they're, they're cheering him on and egging it on, and maybe that creates more of this and that's why we see more of it we saw the the apple incident from a few months ago where a lot of conservatives really praised him for that so i feel that's becoming an ingrained thing that they're doing and we're going to see more not less of it so, so i wonder you know an important constituency uh, for everybody is are the ukrainian is the ukrainian diaspora in canada mm -hmm. the claim that voting for the ukraine the ukrainian free trade agreement would oppose a carbon tax on ukraine ukraine says that's not true Right, and they negotiated this. They have had carbon pricing for a decade. The Ukrainian Canadian Congress has put out a statement saying they're disappointed in this. They want the Conservatives to reconsider before it goes to a third vote and thank the people who voted for it. Does that cause any discomfort inside Conservative ranks when a group like that is is making statements that way? It certainly does. Like uh, as the Prime Minister actually pointed out today too, uh, the Conservative Party was, is the strongest supporter of Ukraine traditionally yeah. in this country. So to vote against this does raise a lot of eyebrows. The carbon uh, excuse feels a bit flimsy, and there seems to be a lot more to this than what we're seeing. Yeah, it does say it would promote carbon pricing, and I can understand why Pierre Polyev would not want to vote for something Greg saying they want to promote carbon pricing because he does not agree in promoting carbon pricing, clearly. But you know, to have the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress doing this, and then we're seeing the Prime Minister today, right-wing, MAGA-style politics being imported by them, what's the play there for the Liberals? Do, you really think, do they really think a Trump comparison is going to work. For one, we can look at New Brunswick in terms of the uh, the family-friendly so-called stuff looks very much like the same language coming out of the United States. But I'll, I'll say this. The reason why they're saying this is there are conservatives who are saying this quietly and are concerned. I've heard this myself. There are people that are very people I've worked alongside in this town for a long time who are proud, card-carrying conservatives who do not want to see a return to the Reform Party. And if you're a progressive, you're obviously there's not a lot of room left in this party for you. Look at how they treated Jean Charest during the leadership. But I think the reason that they're pulling on this thread was how surprising this was. When the conservatives decided to vote against this part of the bill, 
it surprised a lot of people in town. And I get it. If you're late to that, it's easy for you to say, oh, the liberals always do this. They blame the Trump mm. thing. But there is. Take a look at the Republicans, the MAGA Republicans in the United States, and their lack of support for, for Ukraine. And listen, there's a lot of reasons to support Ukraine. If you're a conservative and you just want to be focused on pro-business, you know, our supply chains, our, the price of oil and gas are being hurt by this war. It needs right. to end. Mm. And that is a good enough reason, you would think. Okay, Fred, I want to ask you about what he said about the conservatives, but I want to get Mel in on this first. Do you think a MAGA-Donald Trump comparison can work? Because people kind of dismiss it because it got overused, yeah. you know, so often. Yeah. But the liberals seem to be going that way in social media, and certainly what the prime minister said today. Right. I, I think I would be maybe a little bit careful to compare to, to Donald Trump just because... Um, I don't think we're there yet, and I don't think it's worked. Like when they tried to use it against Doug Ford back in 2018, that didn't work. Yeah. And Doug Ford has been a very Ford different not politician. Even fit with yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, and he's turned out to be yeah. quite different, right? Um, I think uh, what we saw this week, though, was the Prime Minister finally say something about Pierre Polyev and whether good or bad, we'll, we'll see. Um, but he's starting to frame the conversation around Pierre Polyev. I think to Fred points earlier um, about you know, speaking to the base, I think that that's fair and well, um, but you need enough people in the mm -hmm. base or you need enough people who haven't voted and who will vote. Maybe there's a path there for the Conservatives, but for folks who don't consider themselves a member of any party and who are looking to the leaders in the next election for who they want to be Prime Minister, I don't think that speaks to them. Um, and, and I think you still need to talk to those folks and right. doing media is a way to do that. So folks at home who are deciding who to be their Prime Minister in the next election, I don't think they would have liked what they saw this week. Okay, Fred, I know you're dying to talk about the fall economic statement, but I just had to ask you a question. <laughs> yeah, um, on what, what Greg said there about yeah. there are people in the party mm. concerned about this. Uh, do you get that vibe uh, you know, from conservative uh, supporters and past workers that, that they have a concern about the direction of the party? Look, the Conservative Party is a coalition of many different types of conservatives. There's right. always friction within the party. That's not new, it's not old, it's not something that's going to go away. Uh, but it is uh, pretty quiet when you're 16 point up in the yeah. polls, like we are right now. So yeah. no, not hearing a lot of that. Yeah. Uh, if the polls shift in the coming weeks or months, then it'll get louder and you'll hear a lot more of those rumblings. Right, okay. We've got about five minutes, which should be enough to probably <laughs> talk about the fall economic statement here. But Mel, I, I want to start with you because you see this as a problem, that the Liberals kind of got nothing from this this week. What's your sense? Yeah, we, we had kind of, last week when we spoke, we had talked about how the fall economic statement was an opportunity for the Liberals to set the narrative or to continue to set the narrative and to stick to it and to keep talking to it. And, you know, Fred said, I doubt we're going to be talking about it on Friday. And, and sure enough, um, we're only talking we about it. Talking about about it. it. Yeah. <laughs> we're talking about it, but um, I don't think folks at home are paying attention. I don't think folks at home are still talking about it. They're not being like, oh, did you see what was in the, the fall economic statement on Tuesday? I don't, for the most part, think people really understand what was in there because it didn't really seem like there was a whole lot of stuff that could help people right away. Could it also be because of what happened at the border on Wednesday? It totally <laughs> could. It totally yeah, could. But, but, yeah. but I think that shows the problem that this government has had mm -hmm. to not only just respond to stuff, but be proactive on stuff, right? And their fault or, um, you know, world events that continue to happen, fine, but you should still be able to have a proactive message, and the fact right. that we're not talking about this Friday, uh, come today, is, is, I think, a problem that the PMO and the Liberals need to fix because they're not able to stick to a message and continue on that message. You know, Fred, this is your, your pick this week, right, that 
it's already old news, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, look, the governing parties during a, a calendar year have two major days that they can control a message and really drive the narrative. Mm -hmm. It's budget day and it's fall economic statement day, and they completely missed it. There was no unifying narrative, no story that came out of this that they could be pushing for the next few months, no uh, memorable lines coming out of it other than, you know, massive out-of-control debt and uh, gloomy forecasts. Uh, but <laughs> Funny that broke. Liberals, to your point, are usually good at, like, countering that. They, right, but there's no story coming out of this. They're not, you know, there's, they are beginning to punch back against the Conservatives, so they're showing yep. more and more signs of life on that front, but they're still not telling anyone or Canadians why they should be in power other than they don't like the other guys. Yeah, uh, and, 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 you know, Greg, I wonder, you know, this lack of narrative, because lo and behold, what did I see today? That Max Valiquette will be joining the Prime <laughs> Minister's <laughs> office in early December as Executive Director of Communications, responsible for a consistent narrative across all of government. Is uh, what, what, what you're sense of what the challenge Mr. Valiquette will, will be facing when he starts this new gig. Well, we've talked about that challenge, and I think yeah. sometimes the challenge is not just communications, it's things like media relations, because I saw a lot of that during the um, talk about the carbon price and the heat pumps, how much people didn't really understand the program, and they were still going to press with it. But three things. One is, I am n not one bit fussed that we're not talking about the fall economic statement tonight. If we are talking instead about Pierre Polliver's tendency to lie and the trouble he got into mm. this week. Also, last week, as I said, they do not want this to be a mini-budget anymore. It is supposed to be a fall economic yep. statement. And the third part is the big bulk of the FES was around housing. And in, for the, the oxygen got taken up this week by the border incident, by the Ukraine vote. But the other stories were that Sean Fraser was still dealing with cities and they were still doing housing announcements. And so the, the FES is housing, housing is FES. That's going to continue to, to be rolled out. It, Mel, it, it, is there a good thing in the lack of news on the Fez? Because you didn't hear Tiff Macklem when he had his press conference say, I am worried about federal government spending again and its effect on inflation. In fact, he described this as potentially helpful because there's not a lot of juice in there to jolt the economy. Yeah, and I think we probably saw a little bit of that with your interview with, with Minister Freeland when, you know, she was trying to be optimistic. I, I think a lot of that is to to keep the the balance with um, yeah. with our economy. But to, to people watching at home, I just thought it was a bit of a slap in the face. You can be, um, you can hold a steady hand and also say, hey, I hear you. I hear you're having a hard time and we're working on it. And I think that's what was missing from, from Tuesday and why I think we're, we're not still talking about yeah, it. Yeah, kind of an empathy vibe was missing a little bit. I, I think, Fred, a lot of optimism. And I know the finance minister can't talk down the economy and you got to point to things like foreign investment and the importance of that. But when people are hurting, they want to hear a little bit of that. We get it and we're working on it. And she did not come close to that. Yeah. She was way over the top optimistic, which is, like Melanie said, nice to hear, but not realistic. It's not legitimate. It's not realistic. Real. Same time we have Poliev, the sky is falling. Uh, so I don't know if there's a, a middle ground that we may get to someday where a, someone can come out and actually tell us where we really are. Yeah, Canada is sprained. It's not broken. Sprained, it's yeah, sprained. Maybe, maybe that's where we are economically. You know, that, that, I, I, I wouldn't want to take that into an election <laughs> campaign. We're in the ice section, then we'll go back to the heat section. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Okay, Rest yeah, ice yeah, compression yeah. and elevation for a political economy. <laughs> All right, gang, we've got to leave it there. Uh, it's a great way to end the week every week. Thank you to Greg McEcker and Fred Delory and Melanie Richet. That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm David Cochran. Thanks for listening.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.